Welcome to Positions, the Cultural Studies Association sponsored podcast, published through the open source journal Lateral. Positions aims to provide critical reflection and examination on topics, cultural studies for scholars, students, and a general audience. Make sure to follow CSA and Lateral Journal on socials and subscribe to our podcast to keep up with new episodes. In our second episode, the Performance Studies Working Group of the CSA hosts. Our episode's title is Let's Relax, Audience Access and Relaxed Performance. We are guided by Pong Hui. Special guest Lee Jackson and myself, Andrew Colt, also are joined by Hannah Simpson to discuss work on relaxed performance, including a recent book by Simpson on Samuel Beckett, Disability and Performance with Paul Grave. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Andrew, and I teach at the California Institute of the Arts in the MA Aesthetics and Politics program, as well as Critical Studies. I'm joined here today by Hui, Hannah, and Lee. So let's just begin with some quick introductions. Hui. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Hui. I'm a PhD candidate uh, in theater and performance at Graduate Center CUNY. I also teach at Hunter College. I'm a co-chair of Performance Working Group at CSA. Um, I'm very happy to have Lee and Hannah here today to discuss relaxed performance. Hi, I'm Lee. I am the Director of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility Programming at People's Light, which is a Lord D. Theater in Malvern, just 30 minutes west of Philadelphia. Um, I'm responsible for the accessibility supports that we offer during our seventh uh, production season. These include the relaxed performances, open captioning, ASL interpretation, audio description, and something very new, our smart caption glasses, which is uh, something that we are the we're the first theater in the United States to offer. So it's all very exciting work. Hi, my name is Dr. Hannah Simpson. I'm lecturer in theatre and performance at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the UK. Um, I work mostly on the representation of the human body on stage and politicised representations of the body more generally. And I've got a special interest in the work of Samuel Beckett in depictions of physical pain and disability and issues of audience access. Um, I've written two monographs, Samuel Beckett and the Theatre of the Witness, Pain in Post-War Francophone Drama, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2022, and Samuel Beckett and Disability Performance, which was published with Palgrave also in 2022. Um, and I've published work on disability specifically in journals like Theatre Topics, the Journal of Beckett Studies, the Journal of Modern Literature, and the Journal of Feminist Scholarship. We're so excited to have everyone today. Way I think has created an excellent structure for the conversation, but it's going to be relaxed itself, a little bit open-ended and a bit of a discussion. We wanted to begin just with a brief introduction to Hannah's new book on Samuel Beckett and disability performance, specifically chapter four on Not I, uh, Tourette's Hero 2017 to 2020, and questions on audience access and relaxed performance. So maybe we can just start there. Yeah, so this is my uh, most recent book, Samuel Beckett Disability Performance. Um, the book grapples with depictions of disability in Samuel Beckett's theatre work. 
um, both in the original playtext themselves and with a really specific eye to how disabled actors and theatre practitioners have encountered and embodied these these stable bodies in their depictions. Um, it, it, it's sort of a dual work. Um, every chapter deals with a specific playtext um, and is paired with a specific performance. Um, so it's half me talking about the playtext and about various theoretical issues that it throws up and then half uh, practitioners um, interviewing, uh, being interviewed about, about their work and their perspective. Um, and it's very much born, it's very much born out of this question of what is it about Beckett's work that has attracted so much disability performance and the idea that this is work that is really, really um, engaged all the way through with impaired bodies and alternative impairments and environments in a way that hasn't really actually been recognised in the critical field as much as a lot of disabled practitioners have recognised these uh, their own lived experiences of disabilities and these figures. Um, so a lot of the book was sort of, you know, speaking to an academic audience and saying we need to follow what these practitioners are seeing. There's something here that we have overlooked by reading these bodies metaphorically, etc. We've We've got a lot to learn from the practitioners here. The first time that I know about your work is the article that you published, I think years ago in these topics, talks about um, audience member who has Tourette syndrome and how they um, perceive the show. And in that article, you introduce um, a concept relaxed performance, which you also mentioned in your new book, um, uh, chapter four, when you talk about audience access. So um, I'm just wondering, uh, so. In your definition, what is relaxed performance and why it is so important in um, the industry right now? Yes, so I very much follow um, Jess Tom is is the director and, and primary performer at Tourette's Hero. She's a uh, performer with Tourette's Syndrome that, um, that manifests in both fish, uh, verbal and mobility tics. Um, and she's worked in relaxed performance for a long time. Almost all of their uh, company productions are relaxed performances. She defines relaxed performance as performances that take a relaxed attitude to behaviour in the auditorium. It is nothing to do with the idea that the art on stage is more relaxed or more half-hearted or less aesthetically engaged, etc. It's the recognition that um, as a range of spectators in the audience, we have different attentional behaviours. Some people will make more noise, some people will need to move around more, etc. Um, this is obviously particularly useful when you're thinking about access. Um, if you have people who very literally cannot control what their bodies are doing in accord with a certain, you know, quite old-fashioned, silent, still audience, etc., um, but it is also interesting in that that is true of a lot of people who don't have an official diagnosis of any disability. We have different attentional behaviours and, you know, a mobile spectator or a slightly rustling spectator, etc. can be a very, very engaged and interested spectator. That's what relaxed performance tries to recognise and allow for. At, at People's Light, we have a rela one relaxed performance for every uh, production. And what we typically do is we raise the house lights so people can move around safely. We have a chill space. We uh, announce at the beginning of the of the performance that this is a relaxed performance in which we relax the ru typical rules of theater etiquette. And what I find, and that means allowing 
or um, inviting people to be who they are. It means it means we say explicitly this is a no shush zone. So so people can vocalize as they need to. They can communicate with devices as they need to. And what I have found is the invitation is clearly extended to everyone. Um, we often have other people whom I believe to be neurotypical who who take advantage of the invitation as well and who move in and out of the theater as they need to. I mean, to be a little uh, explicit about it, we have um, a lot of middle-aged men who get up and, and take advantage of the freedom to go to the bathroom. And yes, they're welcome to do that. It's wonderful. So our, so our invitation is much more than just the, than just who you think we're inviting. As a researcher who is now writing a dissertation on relaxed performance and experience making of neurodivergent audience member, I always heard, um, like, I always remember that my friend comment on my project saying that while Quay are doing something about relaxed performance, you must be feel you must feel so relaxed during the whole research process. Quite the opposite. I feel sometimes overwhelmed. I feel lost. I feel torn uh, while watching a relaxed performance. Um I think Hannah you mentioned in your article um uh the actually we have a lot of different definition of relaxed performance. And I personally consider relax here as a verb, means loosen the rules and norms, um, Im implicit or explicit rules and norms uh, of spectatorship in theater in order to accommodate different needs of audience member. So I think it is something that um, more in that, so the, the rules and norms are more in the house rather than on the stage, because I came from a background of audience study and I personally more interested in how audience members perceive the show. But of course, later we can discuss how the access um, should be also built into the very beginning of the making of the art. But I think um, a lot of people know about the term relaxed performance uh, as an audience member because you would know when you buy the ticket. And there is like a pop-up window saying that, oh, you purchase a relaxed performance. So I think that is the way that I know about relaxed performance as an audience member. Um, but as a term, as a, a ter as a term that being officially introduced to theater uh, industry, I think it is uh, 2012 and 2013, um, uh, UK has incorporated this relaxed performance pilot project. And so that there are um, in total eight theater company in West End, they're trying to investigate the value of incorporate relaxed performance in their regular schedule. It's just so important. And as the sort of uh, non-performance interloper here, I would love for us to discuss a little bit about neurodiverse, neurotypical, which are common terms, but maybe they deserve a little unpacking here. And then also maybe even a brief moment on general expectations uh when quietness came to be and how relaxed performance really seems to interact with them maybe having its own evolution or chain 
Yes, absolutely, because this is one of my current bugbears and my students are fed up hearing about it. <laughs> Neurodiversity as a term simply refers to the fact that all of our brains, all of our neurological systems operate in slightly different ways. We're all neurodiverse. Everybody's sitting in this meeting right now is neurodiverse. Um, there's no such thing as a neurodiverse individual, for example, that doesn't make sense. But within that concept of neurodiversity, we have the concepts of being neurotypical and being neurodivergent. Um, neurotypical being the idea that our brain system, our sensory system, our neurological system functions as we broadly expect it to do. So in a medical sense, in a cultural and social sense, we sort of fit the expected norm. We behave as people expect us to do. Um, and our sensory system operates as we expect it to do. Neurodivergent people diverge from that expected norm. So we are getting into that tricky question, which comes with defining disability as to how far we think about these things as medical and um, things that diverge from what we think of as standards of health or useful, necessary functioning. And how far we're talking about simply diverging from, you know, a constructed social or cultural expectation of this is how your body should work. This is how your brain should work. Um, and I also would add that um, neurodiversity, um, this term, um, was actually used first by the autistic community first in the 90s. So it's born out of um, autistic community. And it is, uh, I understand it as a political point of view that uh, the neurodiverse community, the way that they perceive the world hold the same way as neurotypical. I will say at our theater, when we talk about neurodiversity, um, we often talk about different forms of, or different broad categories of neurodiversity. So we often talk about people with dementia. We'll talk about people uh, with uh, PTSD. We'll, we'll talk about other ways in which the brain might function differently from the uh, expected ways. So our invitation for our relaxed performances um, is to is to people with dementia, is to people with PTSD and and uh, and other other ways in which the brain just may not conform to what we think it ought to be doing. And I'm also very curious, hopefully this isn't too elementary. What might be some of the typical expectations of an audience that relaxed performance is meant to diverge from itself and you know where are those expectations does it have a history um do they seem rather uniform um through most performance spaces or are there particular places where you'll see them or not uh, yes, absolutely. The, this idea that we have um, a sort of modern and contemporary idea of what a good audience looks like, that silent, still, respectful audience. We interpret that sort of silent stillness as, as respect, I think. It's it's an incredibly modern concept. I think a lot of people have a sort of vague historical sense of, of say, for example, uh, you know, Shakespeare's audiences at the Globe, the idea of the sort of raucous callback and, you know, vocal engagement with the performance. There is, as with most things in academia, there is discussion and debate as to exactly when we might pinpoint the beginning of this modern concept of theatre etiquette. 
Uh, one point that, that there is a lot of historical evidence for, though, is the 1950s in the UK, at least, where we are in the middle of a sort of social and political upheaval following World War II. There's a lot of shifting of class behaviour, class categories. And one thing that we see is a lot of the theatre industry starting to really police and instruct audiences in how to behave. You see um, theatres publishing guides on how to behave. Um, the Royal Festival Hall publishes a plain man's guide to coughing, to, to warn you not to cough during during performances. Um, one theatre company sends celebrity actors out into schools to, to teach children how to behave. Don't eat sweets, don't rustle, don't move about, uh, make sure your parents don't talk to each other. We do have this moment in the, in the 1950s where we can see this this work being really explicitly taught, this new idea. Um, I think now we're much more accustomed to that being a self-policing idea. It's becoming ingrained in us at a cultural level that that is what is good. Um, we sort of treat it as this ahistorical, cultural idea, um, or at least a lot of mainstream white theatres do. Um, and I think that most people who have experienced being policed and being shushed, etc., I would guess it's more often from other audience members than from the theatre necessarily. It's become a, a sort of self-replicating system now. We all police and discipline each other rather than needing theatres to do it necessarily, which I imagine makes your work quite hardly in terms of trying to overturn those ideas. Hannah, <laughs> how does the presence of cell phones complicate that issue? I think cell phones is one of the trickiest questions um, because, again, and I mean, there's such a generational gap there as well, isn't there? And I absolutely recognise that idea of, you know, the light goes on. Someone, you know, A, the fact that the light of the phone is distracting, you know, might genuinely be distracting you, but simply the idea that you can see someone not paying attention. Um, and the very, I think, legitimate concerns that, uh, that we've seen about um, recording um, or, you know, taking photographs of the actors on stage, particularly if they're sort of intimate scenes, etc. Um, and I think there's far less recognition in, in the general public of the fact that you may need your phone. It may be a technological access device. It may be, you know, something legitimately work-related if you are a, an emergency healthcare worker, etc. Um, but I think that's one of the hardest things. I mean, quite honestly, myself as well, I see a teenager with a phone and my inclination is to go, stop that. <laughs> And have to think very carefully, hang on, you don't know, let them be. They're not, they're fine. <laughs> we recently had an issue at a theater performance on Broadway where one of the actors stopped the performance to scold an, uh, a patron who was actually using the her phone for accessibility and was very, very upset by the public shaming of it. And I think that's, you know, that's a, that's an example of somebody who, one, the actor was not prepared for what what was possibly, a, what was clearly a legitimate use of the, of the phone. But also, but also it was not, it was a blurry situation. It wasn't, it wasn't clear how this person was using the phone. It had not been explained and it was, it was painful all around. So it's worth it's worth kind of the conversation. Yeah, um, going back to uh, Andrew, your question about expectation of audience member, I personally think that um, relaxed performance actively responds to this ableist theater etiquette. 
um, to being a quiet and still audience member, which is all the social construct of theater history. And I think even today, if you go to see a show, I, I just saw a show yesterday is three hours and 30 minutes without intermission. I, I was, I wish this is, that was a relaxed performance or I can at least just like go out, take a break and come back, but it was not. So you can still see this, the quiet and the still receptivity continue to dictate like when, where, and how one should pay attention during the show. But relaxed performance really actively responds to the rule, uh, to the norms by, as Willie said, turning the house lights on, allow audience members to vocalize, encourage audience member to move around during the show. I'm I'm thinking about Black American theater audiences and how um how there is an element of of participation and call and response that is not necessarily um not necessarily expected and uh I think but it but it is welcomed and I think that that is sort of an an interesting exception to the rule of uh of rules and um and expectations and is probably more aligned with the idea of the relaxed performance from the perspective of the audience members that's certainly something in the in the UK um Kwame Kwearma whenever he took over artistic directorship of the Young Vic in London um and and talked a lot about the, the very necessary and very difficult job he had of diversifying that West End theatre audience and said that he didn't necessarily realise when he first arrived, but that such a crucial part of that job was actually, yes, the the, the sort of microcosm of, of audience etiquette. The idea that, again, an, an engaged um, audience member who is enjoying and who is listening may then be vocally engaged, may be, you know, maybe call and response, maybe clicking, maybe clapping. That is not a sign of disrespect that is a very very clear sign of engagement i think one of the flip sides we've had or having at the minute in the uk about about this debate is um the question of class quite i've started to see responses whenever people bring up this idea of you know silence and stillness as a very middle class or upper middle class etiquette and a lot of resistance from working class individuals there saying, you know, there is something incredibly patronizing about this. Just because I'm working class doesn't mean I don't know how to be quiet at the theater. I know what a theater is. I'm, I manage it at the cinema, etc. I think it's becoming one of the slightly more divisive bits of discourse where people are trying to, you know, out of for, for good reason, trying to point out where we get these cultural constructions from. And you run into these problems of, of sort of amassing ideas around around the class, around the culture, etc. It's it's one of the tricky bits of the discussion in the UK, at least at the moment. I think in the end, what it boils down to is a certain kind of normalizing of of behavior. What is what are we considering to be normal audience behavior? I I have a very very wise and wonderful colleague who was talking about inviting people into the audience who vocalized and she had a performance where I think there was one person who was vocalizing and she said what we really need to do is to invite more people so that this feels normal and expected and I thought that was such a great idea you know to understand that 
that this is not exceptional behavior, but it is but it is something that is very welcome and is more universal than we all think it might be. This leads us to a question that I know that Huey has, which is, how do these performances get described and communicated to people? Are they disability specific? Are they welcoming to all? What are the challenges that come with choosing one over the other in order to make it a space that's very inclusive, but then also isn't just limited to a particular type of normal and then slash abnormal behavior that sort of maintains a sort of classic split? Yeah, I think that is the struggle that I have right now when I'm trying to write about relaxed performance because based on my observation, um, of the theater company who feature relaxed performance in the past two decades, they are trying to make their language very inclusive, saying that this is something welcome to all. But at the end of the day, they need to describe their so-called targeted audience member. They would have to say, oh, this is for autistic community or anyone, uh, like people who are have like a sensory processing difference. So they try, you have to specify at the end, even though you're trying to be inclusive. So I think that is um, the question that I have right now. I think I, I don't have an answer right now. I want to hear really your thoughts on this because you're a practitioner in the field. So how do you deal with this? We just had a really interesting experience. We have for some years now offered relaxed performances for uh, productions that we consider to be more adult, adult in content and sophisticated ideas, all this kind of thing. The audience is typically older. And we had been offering our relaxed performances on Sunday matinees. We decided that we would experiment with offering the relaxed performance on a Friday evening. We just did this and the audience was very small. And I think that the I think that there two things were happening. One, I I think the evening performance was not as accessible to our intended audience. And I'm all my huge question, which I don't have an answer to yet, is whether the audience that typically went to a Friday evening performance said, "Oh, this is not for us." And I don't know the answer to that. You know, we're 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 asking the question, we're shifting things around to see what might happen. But I think that this sort of to answer your question is that this is something that we're still trying to figure out. Um, it's a it's a process. And we have we had defined the relaxed performance as something that was open to everyone, but we also used a lot of language that identified invited members as people who were neurodiverse. And um, so, I, I, so I'm just wondering if the previous audience interpreted that as something that was less welcoming to them. Or perhaps even as well, I think sometimes there is that, that fear of taking up a resource as well. There is that sense of, oh, there is a need here that, that perhaps I shouldn't take that up if I don't, if I don't desperately need it. Um, I quite like a jazz tome has a, a, a slightly flippant, but I think with a little bit of authenticity at the heart of it, um, idea that we should be moving to all performances as relaxed performances as standard, um, with some 
exceptions that are labeled uptight performances. If you want an uptight performance, <laughs> which I do, I quite like in an ideal world. I imagine part of the problem as well, though, is is this idea of, you know, if, if the ideal is universal access, universal design that allows everybody to be included, etc. We know at a practical level that doesn't work. People have competing access needs. If you have a hearing impairment, you might really struggle with the relaxed performance, for example, if you need, if you really need that, that stillness, that silence as well. So I do think this, this question of, well, well obviously there's sort of a, you don't want to risk that siloing as, as you're pointing out, Andrew, of going like, here is the performance for everybody. And then here is performance for other people. Um, it's a really tricky balance there of thinking about competing access needs and the fact that I, I think we'll, we'll never have a universal access design in, in, in any school of the world, let alone theatre. Our relaxed performances often include ASL interpretation, audio description, and and um, can include open captioning or the smart caption glasses depending on the timing of the relaxed performance. I do think that that can create a sense of, I don't want to say competing needs, but I do want to say crowded needs, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, for very for one example, there are many people who are neurodiverse who need accessible seating. The ASL people the ASL audience will need will need seating that often is accessible because it has to be very close to the interpreter. So we can't accommodate everyone, and and it is and this too is a question about how to parse the different support systems so that we are accommodating everybody in the best way. Yeah, I think for me, my observation is um, in the U.S. in the past two decades, because all starts from awesome-friendly performance that is initiated by theater developmental fund, TDF. They're doing this autism-friendly show on Broadway for autistic community. And 20 years later, I interviewed them and asked them, Wait, have you ever think about changing your name to relaxed performance and they said no because they know who their audience member they know who their community are and and they want to serve the community so they don't want to change it to a more inclusive language and that is something that surprised me but on the other hand i see a lot of theater company use relaxed performance sensor friendly performance and awesome friendly performance interchangeably and that, I think, make things more complicated. Um, for me, I see scholars analyze relaxed performance through the lens of community theater, if they know who their community are, but who their community is, or through the lens of drama therapy. Um, that is two big school of thoughts. And there is a third kind of uh, thinking is it's more like uh, what I'm personally more inclined to is maybe this is an opportunity for everybody, both neurotypical and neurodivergent, to discuss uh, what kind of interpersonal relationship that we want in theater. Because, yes, uh, we can loosen the rules and norms, but at the end of the day, you still need some rules and norms to share your time and space to watch the show together. 
And I think that is an invitation to everybody. We all need to discuss that. One thing that this conversation has not has not yet addressed is how the artists themselves are implicated in this. And um, and the idea of drama therapy to me says you want to shape the performance in a particular way. I could be wrong about that, but that's that's what it sounds like to me. And I think that the way that we conceive the relaxed performances at our theater is that is that we do not change the performance, not a whole lot. We used to maybe adjust the sound, maybe eliminate some sounds, but we don't do that as much anymore. We rely very, very heavily on our pre-performance guide to let people know what's coming and so that they can make some choices. But I do think, you know, I do think that there's a question about, about what we want from the audience, but also what we want from the performers. And, um, and I will say that I have a, a number of, of RP patrons who say, we don't want the, the performance to change. We don't, because they view that as being very condescending, really, in, in a lot of ways. And I think it was fascinating because it, it's getting at, I mean, one of the reasons that I think your your theatre company is so excitingly, it's it's this idea that you can make all the access requirements and needs, et cetera, that you want. You can have all the language about diversity and inclusion. If all your programming as relaxed performance are children's shows and musicals, which is often the case in, in the West End and London, that's not inclusive. That's your own quiet curatorial work going on there about who is coming to see relaxed performance or what people with access needs want to see um, that, that that is still really, really pernicious hole on, on the West End, certainly. Um, so I think that's one of those sort of quiet um, exclusions that's going on as well that is sometimes harder to pinpoint that, that work like your theatre is, is doing so valuably. And the trick, though, is to find that audience for the adult RPs. And that's that is really the hard work. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how to reach people who who want this. And this is why I sort of joke about the middle-aged men, because I am finding that, that uh, the relaxed performances for the adult productions are relaxed for so many more people than you would think. We also think about relaxed performances for parents of very young children. Um, and I think, I think, but I think that the adult performances, the adult productions are very, very tricky. One of the constant topics in the cohort that I lead is how do we find this audience? My experience, uh, I don't know if this is universal or fair, but my experience with uh, neurodivergent adults is that many do not many do not belong to groups necessarily, and are and are often coming to theaters as individuals. So there is no kind of centralized space to invite people. Um, so we, it's it's what, building this audience one participant at a time. And that that takes time, but I think that I think that we can get there. Also, what I'm not 
acknowledging is how many people may already be in the audience. And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is very much me speaking from an idealistic academic perspective and not having to worry about my box office takings, et cetera. But I do think one thing that is really interesting there is this question of of relaxed performance or simply relaxed cultural expectations around theatre auditoria being a really useful thing for audiences in general. And I'm wary of sort of going down that line whereby we, we only do disability access if it's good for other people too, right? If we weren't allowed to stim until fidget spinners were a thing and then everyone was allowed to stim. But I do think it gets to the heart of why you turn to theatre as a medium. You go there to be live and embodied with other people. That, that's the defining point of the medium. And with, you know, the, both audience members and actors on stage, it's about being together bodily. Um, otherwise, you know, why go? Why not Why not go to a film? Why not watch live television, etc.? So it seems really counterintuitive then to have erected this cultural expectation that you also mustn't let it be known that you have a body, right? You've got to be as invisible as possible. And that if any other spectator, heaven forbid, makes you aware of their presence, that that needs to be shushed and disciplined. And we have to all go and gather together as a community and then pretend that we can't see each other. I think we are getting, you know, into a question of, well, why come to the theatre then? Which is taking us away from the question of access, but I do think it's an intriguing possibility that relaxed performance opens up as well. It allows us to rethink the, the fact that the point of the theatre medium itself. So one thing that I've been hearing in the conversation so far is that there's still this question of whether or not a relaxed performance could be a default performance, or is it still... Uh, an amended or adjusted or somehow different than what would otherwise be a default. So I'm wondering, what are some things that a relaxed performance uh, challenges about the other conventions of performance that maybe would enhance or change or make better that other performance and making it no longer something that's you know seen as other or inferior, but in fact could maybe you know, uh, push performance in new and important directions. I'm um, interested in, in this question and in how it relates to, to this previous discussion we had of the kind of quiet curating that goes on of, of what shows are suitable for relaxed performance. Um, one of the chapters of my book, Samuel Beckett Disability Performance, looks very specifically at, at Jess Tom's Tourette's Hero production of Samuel Beckett's Not I, which is you know, canonically one of the most difficult shows for an actor to perform. It's incredibly intense, incredibly demanding. It's also a really difficult show to watch. <laughs> you know, it is designed and, we, you know, we have a lot of um, biographical material from Beckett himself working to create this show that, quote unquote, works on the nerves of the audience, not the understanding. It, um, and it's a really interesting case study, I think, because that is something where relaxed performance as a term can bring up issues, right? We're not always relaxed when we watch a performance, nor do we always go to the theatre to be relaxed. Obviously, there are wonderful entertaining shows where you can go and zone out completely and have a wonderful time, but sometimes we go to be challenged or to see something incredibly intense, whether that's emotionally intense or, you know, dialogue intense. Um, 
And Jason has spoken very specifically about how they chose Not I as a performance, in part because she saw a lot of similarities between the protagonist's experience of life and her experience of Tourette's syndrome, but also because it laid down the gauntlet of what relaxed performance could be. If, if that was sort of the, the, the end goal of a thing that could not be done as a relaxed performance and still work the way it was intended, if they could do that, then nobody could say to them, oh, well, this show wouldn't work as relaxed performance. They could say, well, we've done Beckett. We've, we've done Beckett's Not I. And it is one of the things that, that I go into in quite a lot of detail in that chapter. I think it's really fascinating because how do you craft a relaxed performance that allows you to be relaxed in the ways that are necessary under the criteria of what a relaxed performance is, but also still recreates that tension and that real emotional intensity that is part of, of, the, of the play. Complicated, interestingly, I think, by the fact that the, the Samuel Beckett estate who licenses Beckett plays are very, very strict about them being done according to the author's intention. So they're quite happy to make, you know, they, they allowed a lot of adaptations for Jess Tom's Not I, but only those that fit with what the play was meant to produce. So they were also under that that um, that necessity of not going, oh, we're going to do a Not I that everyone really enjoys. It's really chill and easy to listen to. Um, so I think it's a wonderful case study of how far you can push these ideas, relax performance and still have that aesthetic and verbal and emotional intensity as well. Incredible imagination because it really shows you where things could go and maybe even just the beginning because there's so much more to continue exploring. On the flip side, I'm really curious about what are some of the resistances to relaxed performance? You know, we get these splashy headlines sometimes that talk about some sort of disruption in the audience and suddenly that becomes a big news item for some people because of the social controversy that arises. But I'm also thinking not just in practice or research, but just all of the avenues where uh, relaxed performance is starting to be discussed and considered. Um, and when there is this resistance, uh, how's it best navigated? Like what are ways to diffuse the situation and to pushing forward in relaxed performance, which seems not just necessary as an ethical question, but it really seems to be a creative avenue that's going to really keep pushing performance, um, keeping it updated and, and finding new uh, creative direction. I don't know if it's resistance as much as it is unfamiliarity. Um, I don't work with the creative part of the theaters, with the, with the artistic leadership in uh, in creating the productions, but I do think that I do think that now there is curiosity about what it means to include thinking about relaxed performances uh, in the in the creation of art and very basic questions like what is this piece? Uh, how do we make selections? How do we how do we choose plays? How do we choose actors? How do we do this in a welcoming way, in a relaxed way, really? Um, so I think that this is something that is starting to be considered. Again, I, I personally, because I have to prepare the actors for the relaxed performance, I see no resistance to it. They are so excited to see to see a broader audience in uh, before them and responding in new ways. 
what I see is really it's just unfamiliarity. But there is universal enthusiasm to welcoming these these new audience members. I mean, why not? <laughs> That's such a lovely thing to hear, Lee. That's really, really encouraging. I love that. I have to agree with you. I think, you know, and I'm slightly anecdotal here, but I, I think that a lot of people who, again, you know, sort of see relaxed performance and decide not to book it, it's not necessarily a decision of I won't like that because it's just a knee-jerk reaction to that's not what I usually go and see and maybe I'm not 100% certain of what it is and if it's meant for me. I think in general, it's very easy to win people around to relaxed performance when you explain what it is. I think a lot of people go, oh, Oh, I love that. You know, I love the idea of being able to get up or stretch or yawn or, you know, whatever. Just, again, acknowledge that, that you have a body, um, which, again, is just taking us back to this really difficult question of how do you familiarize people with the idea? You sort of preach into the choir, aren't you, whenever you talk about relaxed performance. I think within, you know, and, and why I'd be interested to know what you think about this, um, but I think within academia in particular, and this is perhaps more the case in the UK than the US, but there is still something of a resistance to audience studies as a field in its own right. Um, I think certainly a lot of the audience studies experts that I know working within the UK often have to fight quite hard for it to be recognised as a field within its own right. Um, the idea that, oh, but you know, it's theatre studies, right? You, you deal with the text, you deal with performance and and my friend Kirsty Sedgman is, is wonderful in this of sort of going, that that's what the audience is. That's a really crucial part of theatre studies. And we spend all of our non-academic time talking about it, right? Talking about bad audience behaviour and good audience behaviour and so on. So I think that's something within academia, again, within the UK, I'd be interested to know what you think from your, your perspective way, but that we are lagging behind a little on recognising audience studies in its own right. I can't agree more. That is exactly my struggle right now. I have to fight. I have to advocate myself saying that, yes, I'm more interested in what happened in the house than on the stage, which is totally unimaginable for a lot of my Californian colleagues in the U.S. Um, yes, audience study is a field um, in theater and performance under the big umbrella term of theater and performance study. Sounds to me like we're at this really wonderful culminating point in the conversation. It's been so rich and vibrant, starting with some clear concepts on relaxed performance, this history of this social standard of quiet performance that really just doesn't seem to be suiting the, the future of performance, uh, talking about neurodiversity and all of its forms, but then learning such wonderful things about each uh, person's individual context. So I wanted to invite everyone to give some final thoughts if there's a where things are going, maybe talk about your own projects or research a little bit. Or if there's uh, some large concept that either you took from the conversation or you haven't had a chance to say yet that you really want to make sure people get to hear about before we close things out for the day. One thing that I have to say is that we have to keep talking to the audiences that we are appealing to. And I think including them in the conversations about about the accommodations, about the way the audience looks like, what the audience looks like, what we're doing for them, what's working for them has been so enlightening. And I think it's just so important. I think the the point I would most like to make, and it, it 
is very much born out of what Lee is saying as well in terms of the work that your theatre is doing. But it is the attention to how relaxed performance and embedded access is not simply a virtue signaling charity exercise. I think there is a lot of space to think about how it leads to aesthetic innovation and aesthetic excellence, you know, really astonishing work. My book looks really specifically at professional disability productions, which is not to say that there isn't wonderful amateur and community and drama therapy work right there. Um, but I think we run the risk of siloing this this sort of um, artistic work off as something that isn't really art or again, isn't really for me. I don't need that access. Of course, I wouldn't go to see that. And I think I am really excited to see um, what creative access and embedded access does to specific playtexts, to specific performances, and yes, how it can reorient how we think about the theatre medium as a whole as well. Yeah, for me, I really like um, the great performance guide that is created by a theatre company called Trinity Rap, based in Rhode Island in the States. So they have a page that talking to neurotypical audience member, just explaining what it is, um, digital, uh, fidget toys, what is repetitive speech, what is takes. So I feel like it's really an open conversation for both neurotypical and neurodivergent audience member to discuss, negotiate, and rehearse the ideal, if it's not too utopian this term here, the ideal interpersonal relationship in theater. Because um, as I said, even though we relax, we loosen the rules and norms to reflect what do we mean by a normal uh, or a normative ways to behave in theater we still need some rules and norm i think yeah but we can talk about that so i really appreciate relaxed performance give us this discursive discursive site and also prefigurative model to talk about interpersonal relationship in theater on behalf of the cultural studies association and positions podcast Enormous thank you to our guests today, and also a special shout out to the production team, including Mark, Elaine, and many others. And look forward to more podcasts coming soon. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.